Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This week, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer keeps us in the mindset of worship. The beginning of Romans 12 tells us, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world. In life, it is really easy to fall into a mechanical stage. We get so accustomed to doing things in a specific way, it becomes mechanical. It's something we can do almost without thinking about it. What happens when our relationships with other people get that way? Better yet, what happens when our worship gets that way? If you are in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. More information on how you can connect with us at Unity will follow today's talk. Here is Heath with today's message. Isaiah chapter 1. If you're looking for where Isaiah is, uh, it's in the middle of your Bible. You kind of flop your Bible open to Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and then you'll find yourself in the book of Isaiah. We're going to be looking at the first chapter here. Last week, we talked about what is worship. It's not something that we often think about as to what it is that is and constitutes worship. It's what we've gathered here to do this morning. Is, is to worship God. It defines all that we do in our life. It's the continual outpouring of our lives as a living sacrifice to God is worship. But this week, we're gonna look at what worship is not. We're going to look at mechanical worship. It's, there is such a thing as false worship. False worship, sort of like if you ever, as a child like me, you get your Christmas stocking, you eat the candy that's good, and all of a sudden you, you open up some of those chocolates, it looks like chocolate, it's wrapped in beautiful tin foil like real chocolate, and you bite in and it tastes like eating a Christmas candle. You had those chocolates before? It's, it's, it's chocolate, but it's not. Okay, there's such thing as worship, but it's not. It's, it's sort of this cheap, nasty, waxy substitute, this false substitute that we offer to God that has the appearances, the externals of worship, but it never reaches our heart. We want to make sure that that's not us, but that was certainly where the worship of the nation of Judah was at the time of the writing of Isaiah. We're going to see number one here as we're looking at the symptoms of mechanical worship, we're gonna see that one of the first things is that false worship often arises during periods of strength, during periods of prosperity. Uh, And part of the reason for that is there's no persecution. There's really no downside to connecting yourself to God. And so false worship, cultural Christianity tends to arise in periods like this. Isaiah himself prophesied to Judah while Israel uh, was under the shadow of the Assyrian Empire. This is during what we call the divided kingdom, where you have the kingdom of Israel in the north and you had the southern kingdom of Judah. Isaiah is prophesying to the southern kingdom while the northern kingdom is about to be judged by uh, by Assyria and be taken over and taken into captivity. And Judah themselves aren't faring a whole lot better. They themselves will be taken into captivity later. The current king under which Isaiah was prophesying here at this time is King Uzziah. Uh, and he started out well. Second Chronicles 26, 4 to 5 says, He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. 
And so God prospered Uzziah because Uzziah started out humble. He started out seeking God, wanting what God wanted, uh, leading his nation to a military might and uh, took back a lot of the land from the Philistines that they'd taken away from him. Uzziah started out well. In fact, Uzziah, a little interesting piece of trivia here, the catapult was actually invented during Uzziah's time and the first recorded use of a catapult in the military was under King Uzziah. Just kind of an interesting little note. The reason I bring that up is to show that at the time under Uzziah's reign, Israel uh, shares a lot in common with the United States. They were powerful militarily. They were more advanced in their military, in their technology than other places. And like the United States post-World War II, that military might led to a place of great financial prosperity. Israel, or the southern kingdom of Judah is doing quite well here under Uzziah's reign. The problem with success is that often when we become very successful, we can begin to think that the reason I'm militarily strong, the reason we're technologically advanced, the reason I'm wealthy, the reason I'm whatever, is it can lead to a place of pride we can begin to think that, you know what, the reason I am what I am, the reason I'm bigger, stronger, taller, faster, more beautiful, more wealthy, more in, in a great country like the United States is because you know, there's something to me and it can make us proud. And that's exactly what happened to Uzziah. Second Chronicles 26, 16 says of Uzziah that when he was strong, what happened? He grew proud. It says, proud to the point of his destruction, for he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with the king entering the temple to burn incense on the altar? Was that his job? No, you had, even back then, there was a sense of which there was a sort of a separation of church and state. You didn't have the king also serving as a priest. There's only one man in history that's going to be prophet, priest, and king and that's Jesus. Well, Uzziah got full of himself because he was, he was strong, he led his nation into prosperity, and now he feels uh, that somehow he, he deserves to go in and offer this incense as he pleases, to make worship what he pleases. And it, so his pride affected his worship. And as goes the king, so goes the nation. You know, and that's something, the reason we bring this up is, I think as we read through Isaiah's experience here, we're gonna see that there's a lot of similarities between what Judah is experiencing here and what we experience as a nation here in the United States. That we have come to a place where we are technologically uh, powerful, we're militarily powerful, we've got, uh, have had a great economy. Uh, there's a lot going for the United States. It used to be that the United States was the sending nation of missionaries to the world. Uh, we were a light of the gospel, hearkening back to our Puritan forefathers who were you know, we were just, we had this tremendous spiritual heritage as well. The United States has been a great blessing to much of the earth. And if we're not careful, we can come to a place of pride where we begin to think that because of who I am and the nation I'm in and what I have, that somehow that, that makes me a better person. And that leads us to a place where it's going to affect our worship. You cannot be a proud person and worship God. And so we're going to see here in Isaiah chapter 1, he's going to be prophesying against the nation of Judah. He's going to be warning them against false mechanical worship because that's what it had devolved into. Now, you need to understand something about the broader context of Isaiah itself. Isaiah chapter 1, God maintains that Israel has broken their covenant with God. And so the entire structure of the book of Isaiah is a, if you will, a covenantal lawsuit of God against the nation of Judah at this time. 
Uh, it follows a pattern of legal proceedings called the Reeve, uh, which was familiar to them in Middle Eastern cultures, where God is going to lay out his, he's going to call his witnesses, he's going to call the defendant, and he's going to bring the list of charges and the potential penalties there uh, that apply to it. We see he begins, Isaiah chapter one and verse two, it begins with a court summons, if you can't hear it. He says, hear, O heavens, give, give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Can you hear God? He's calling out for the witnesses of heavens and earth. He's like, we've all seen it, that I have given this nation, this tiny nation, all that they could possibly ask for, but they've, they have forgotten me. They've rebelled against me. Uh, later on, Isaiah 1, verse 10, God as the heavenly lawyer brings charges against the defendant. Listen to what he says, though. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Hang on. Who is God naming as the defendant of this cultural, this covenantal lawsuit? Sodom and Gomorrah. Are these the cities that you wanted to live in? What do you know about Sodom and Gomorrah? Uh, first of all, that they just don't exist anymore. So who is God really talking to here? We know that Isaiah is prophesying to the southern kingdom of Judah, so why is he saying Sodom and Gomorrah? Sodom and Gomorrah, if you don't know, were destroyed in Genesis 19 by fire because they were similar to Judah. They were cities that were powerful, cities that were wealthy, and because of that, it led them to a place of indulgence. They began to think that their life is about themselves and indulging themselves. And when you do that long enough, pretty soon you want to get creative with that indulgence and you become perverse. And God wiped them from the earth with fire. Okay, so God is calling who Sodom and Gomorrah? Judah. Would that be offensive, do you think, to Judah? calling Judah this, the, the nation that views itself as a light unto the world. I mean, the holy city, Jerusalem, is in their borders. And God is calling them Sodom and Gomorrah. This is sort of like politicians. This next year is going to be fun. We're going to hear a lot of political ads. Uh, when you really want to just stick it to another politician, who do you compare them to? Right? Who do you mention their name in the same sentence with? Hitler, Right? You, you mentioned them and you mentioned Hitler. The only man the whole world universally agrees is going to hell. You're with this guy. You're like him. Okay? And so that is what God is doing here with Judah. He's reminding them, your behavior is a lot less like my chosen children and a whole lot more like these cities that I destroyed in Genesis 19. And so false worship often arises, arises during periods of prosperity and wealth because we get proud, we become indulgent, and then eventually indulgence even becomes boring and we become perverse and we beg, we, we test God. How far can we push God in immorality before we force God's judge, judging hand upon us? And that's where Judah finds themselves. Uh, that the decline of a nation first shows up in how they worship God. Number two, we're gonna look here that a symptom of mechanical worship is that there is outward activity, and we feel like that outward activity is worship. God says in verse 11, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? Says the Lord, I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. 
So the first indicator in the decline of a nation is not the absence of religion, not that religion is gone, but that religion is there, but it has become mechanical. It's very active, it's very busy, but there's no true spiritual life in it. It's sort of like some of these churches, if you've ever toured Europe, we love to visit castles, we love to visit the old cathedrals and things, but when you go to Paris and you visit the Sacre Coeur Cathedral, did you go there primarily as a place to worship the Lord? I would argue that the worship of God there has not been present for some time. Uh, instead, now it is this grand, glorious cathedral. It's sort of a, just this outward husk that's left over uh, of a time when maybe people in Europe were actively seeking God. You go to Europe now, people are not seeking the Lord. They are mostly lost. And those who are religious have long since abandoned the gospel, and they're just following through with mechanical worship. They're going through the motions. They've got these grand, beautiful, glorious buildings. We're impressed with our stained glass windows. We're impressed with the fact that this cathedral has been here for hundreds of years, and we become more impressed with the building than God, the building over people. Okay, and that is the nature of dead, rote, mechanical religion, is that they are very active, they do all the right religious things, but their heart is far from God. And so God's first critique of Jewish religion is that it is busy. What does he say about all of their sacrifice? He describes them, he says, um, he says what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices. So Israel, uh, Judah at this time, they're very, very busy. They're active. They're doing all these different religious things. They're offering up all these different sacrifices to the point where God says that it is a multitude. That is a number that means you don't easily count it. It's the same number, it's the same word used in Genesis 48 to describe all the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A number that God called trying to count the, the, as numerous as the sand of the sea and the stars in the sky. It's a multitude. And so Israel, even though they inside are spiritually dead, their heart is far from God, they still maintain a very carefully regimented calendar of religious services and activities. They're verily just, they're, they've got all kinds of, if you will, religious programs taking place, and some of which they should, but they're, they were doing it in such a way that their heart was far from God. They began to think that activity is productivity. Just because a church has a lot going on, just because we have a lot of programs, doesn't mean we're necessarily accomplishing the purposes that God created the church to be. Such was the case of Israel in their religion and their worship in Isaiah 1. Just because they have all kinds of activity, even up to and including a multitude of sacrifices that they're offering to God, it has just become mechanical. It became religious. It became tradition. And they believed that that's truly what God was looking for. But what will God say of them in Isaiah 29, 13? He's gonna say, this people, they honor me with their lips, but where's their heart? It's far from me. So they're coming, they're saying the right words, but they're in their heart. They're like, I really wouldn't be here if I didn't have to be. Don't much like this here. Uh, it would describe the religion of even Israel during the time when Jesus showed up here on earth. And he's talking, and he's talking to the Pharisees, and he sees them, and he calls them whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you're all painted up and pretty, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. There's, there's no internal spiritual life to you. There's, it's just an external conformity. You look pretty on the outside, you're ugly on the inside. And frankly, that was the state of the Jews altogether in Jesus' day. They were pretty on the outside, they lengthened their tassels, but in their heart, they didn't much care whether or not their heart looked like God. This is the opposite of what we studied this last week. Last week, we talked about what is true worship. Romans 12, 1 and 2, we talked about 
spiritual worship, that which arises from the inside. It's, it's uh, logikos, logic, it's intellectual. It begins in our mind and we contemplate who God is and the contemplation of who God is and all that he has done leads us to a place where it changes our heart and we begin to long for God. Our affection is for God. God is the first priority in my life and then it changes and now when we worship, when we sing, when we serve, when we give all that we do, it arises from a heart that wants to do it. I'm not just here at church because it's the right thing to do. It's the obligatory thing to do. Our family's always gone to church here. I'm here because I want to be here. Can you say that? I mean, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands here because it's going to make me sad. Uh, but do you really want to be here today? Thank you. That's very kind. Uh, <laughs> but I want you to really think about that. Why are you here? Are you here because you got drug here? Are you here because a sense of obligation? You're here because if you don't, your deacon's gonna call you? You're here because, uh, I don't know, you're hoping that being here is gonna impress God? You being here is going to ensure you a place in heaven? I'm hoping that we can all come to a place where we have true worship arising from inside our hearts and that the reason you come every Sunday is not because of guilt, not because somebody shames you when you come through the door. Well, it's about time you showed up. <laughs> I haven't seen you in weeks. We don't wanna play that game here at this church. You come because you want to be here. And when you come, even if you haven't come in a while, we're not going to berate you and guilt you and shame you. We want you just to be here because you want to be here. And when you're here, we're happy you're here. But that's where we want to get to as a church. It's not where Judah was as a nation. They were, they were cold in their worship. It wasn't spiritual worship. Again, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Spirit, he says, this is one of the few places in the Bible that says, this is your spiritual worship. Spiritual worship is, is contrasted to external worship. External worship is, I dress right, I come at the right times, I sing at the right times, I stand at the right times, I sit at the right times, and I tip God on the way out. Okay, some of those things are good things. We should be doing them, but we wanna make sure that it's spiritual worship. That means it's arising from within the, within the spirit of a man. Okay, it's internal it's not just I do this externally, but on the inside, I really would rather be somewhere else. It's from the spirit, it's spiritual worship. I'm contemplating God when I sing. So we don't wanna get there where church is just like attending an office Christmas party. Do you know what I mean? I mean, unless you're really close to your employees, do you really wanna to go to an office Christmas party? You got like 14 Christmas parties that you've already got on your calendar this year. Do you wanna to go to an office party with a bunch of people that you barely know and the only reason you have a relationship is because you work together because y'all gotta pay your bills? You go there, but you feel like you kinda of have to go because you really wanna be up for that promotion, so we're going to this Christmas party, honey. We're gonna show up, we're gonna spit, we're gonna eat a couple things, we're gonna shake a couple hands, and we're gonna split as soon as we can because our heart isn't to be here, I'd rather be home. And we can do that at church sometimes where we're here out of a sense of obligation. I really don't wanna build a relationship with these people. I'm not really here to engage in the worship of God. I, I'm coming here out of a sense of obligation. It's what I do. Our family has always been Christians. We've always come to this church. We do this thing. It's the right thing to do or I'll feel guilty or obligated to come and so I'll, I'll come. But when I do, I'm only gonna stay as long as I have to and I'm not really gonna engage with anybody. I'm gonna try to get out of here and, and, and beat people to the golden corral. That's where Judah's worship was at this time, at the, at the writing. How does God feel about Judah's rote mechanical religion where they're just offering up a multitude of sacrifices? Man, just, it was just a factory of killing animals, burning them, offering them up to God over and over and over. God says in verse 11, I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Do you get the impression that God is impressed with the, just the external functions of mechanical religion? 
Sure, these sacrifices are things that God asked for, but he says, I don't delight in them. I asked for it, but you're not giving it to me. God says, I've had enough of that, and I do not delight in it because your heart is somewhere else. Number two, a symptom of mechanical worship is a belief that your simple presence at a service is worship. That if I present myself before God, I come to the right place, I physically, geographically locate my body over here, that somehow my presence in a building or my presence at a service somehow impresses God or increases my standing with him. Most of us would say, of course I don't believe that. But in our hearts, sometimes we do. I mean, I grew up hearing those things. I've told you before, I grew up hearing this phrase, if you love your church, you come to Sunday morning. So clearly you love your church, right? Uh, if you come, if you... If you love your pastor, you come on Sunday night. And if you love Jesus, you come on Wednesday night. You ever heard that? I've heard that. And people kind of chuckle when they say it, but they kind of mean it. <laughs> There's sort of this unwritten law that you are as spiritual as the number of services that you attend each week. Are you a Sunday morning? Are you a Sunday morning and night? Or are you one of these Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night guys? Oh, and even Sunday school. You know, and these are not wrong things to come and to be a part of what God is doing. It's not wrong to be there every time the church doors are open. The problem is we usually use that as a badge of honor. That is what makes me a spiritual person. I'm here every time the church doors are open. I would argue that God's greatest concern for you is that you be a disciple, not that you're just a faithful attender somewhere, that you have season tickets to what God is doing here. Where you're sitting in the stands, you're enjoying the show, but you really aren't impacting the game. I would argue that God doesn't want you to have a season ticket to a show as much as he wants you to come here to train and get out in the field and play ball with us. But that's where Judah was. They believed that just kind of this external uh, activity and just attending services, being physically present somewhere, somehow that is what made God pleased with them. In verse 12, it says, when you come to appear before me, okay, these are people who are gathering together for a religious purpose, he says, when you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me and I am weary of bearing them. So as you can see here, the Jews kept a very careful uh, calendar of religious activity. They were very faithful. Mind you, they're spiritually dead right now, but they maintained an extremely fastidious, careful attendance to the religious service. They were careful to make sure they presented themselves at religious times for religious services at all the right times in multiple different ways. The ways he mentions here, God mentions incense. Now this word incense, as it's used here, this Hebrew word is not referring to incense like you and I think. Hey, my house smells pretty bad. Why don't you go light that and make our house smell like sandalwood? Okay, that's not the kind of incense he's actually talking about here. Even though there were incense, there was incense that was offered in the temple, this is actually a word that is used to describe the sacrificial smoke that was arising from the sacrifices that God received as a, as a pleasant aroma, this, this thing that you know, wafted up and worshiped to God. And this is something that they would offer every morning and every evening nationally, daily as worship to God. In addition to this, he mentions the Sabbaths that the Jews were very careful. We met every week on the Sabbath, okay, the seventh day of the week. 
God mentions new moons, that they were very faithful at the start of every, remember they were following on this lunar calendar, so at the beginning of every lunar month, you would have these new moon uh, gatherings and these activities. And then they had the calling of convocations and solemn assemblies. He's talking about the fact that we have these special holiday type things that we do throughout the year. These gatherings for like, uh, not so much Christmas and Easter as much as it was Passover or they would gather for the Feast of Tabernacles, the uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread, and, and the such. So the Jews, even though they were spiritually dead, were still very careful. We have to follow this religious calendar because in so doing, I am pleasing God. But how did God feel about their faithful attendance to all these services? He called it a trampling of his courts. Now, trample is not a word that I want associated with what I do when I come to present myself before God at a religious service. Trample is what you do when you walk somewhere and you're not really thinking about where you're at. You're just kind of walking all over it. My mom would always talk about, are you trampling in my house with those muddy shoes? You're not thinking about the sanctity and the beauty of this home. Uh, trample would accurately describe uh, someone who's just, they're not thinking circumspectly, they're not thinking reverently or carefully about where they're walking. If you've ever been to a funeral, where do you walk if you're at the committal service, you're, you're putting their body on the ground, where do you walk in a, in a graveyard? Do you just walk everywhere you feel like and wherever you please? The respectful thing is, as adults we know this, you walk in between the headstones, don't you? Why do you do that? You're walking carefully and circumspectly, you are, you are reverent about this situation and this circumstance because it's considered impolite to just kind of trample and walk where you want all over the graves. Now you know that, but what about your kids? You're at that funeral and you're all huddled together in this tiny little tent you know, and you're putting the body on the ground and where are your kids at? You know, sometimes these kids, they're, I've seen them, I've done tons of funerals. I see kids, they're climbing headstones and jumping off. You see kids and they're playing with the toys that somebody's left behind for a departed child and you're, <clears throat> as an adult, you look at that and you're thinking, you don't have any idea what's going on here. You are trampling this cemetery. Instead, you should be walking carefully and reverently and circumspectly thinking about why are you here? Okay, this is the term that God uses of Judah when they're coming to all these and they're presenting themselves before the Lord at all the right times. You know, your daily offerings and your weekly meetings and your monthly things and your annual things. You're doing all of these things and you're just showing up and just kind of trampling through. You're really not thinking about what you're doing. Time to stand up, time to sit down, time to kneel, time to give, time to go. And there just, well, there wasn't any really thought to what they were doing. They were trampling the courts of God and God had no appreciation of that. Their mere attendance did not impress him. In fact, God felt dishonored by how they were present. God says, I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. He says, your new moons, your appointed feasts, my soul hates. These are strong words, especially when you're talking about religious services. He says, I'm weary of bearing them. And so, if you will, the nation of Judah would, would proudly say, we are there every time the church doors are open. What did God say? He uses terms like, I hate, it's wearying to me, I have to bear them. These are not words you want to describe your worship, but that's where Judah was. That God, what impresses God is not just a rote mechanical attendance to a schedule of services. That's not primarily what God is looking for. Did God ask for these services? Yes, but he doesn't want us just to show up at the right times. He wants us to engage. So I wanna be careful here that we don't take this too far and act like it doesn't matter at all whether or not you come to church and whether or not you're faithful in your service. Do we need to be faithful to God in participating in religious services? Yes, again, God created those times that they were supposed to be gathering. 
Even us ourselves, Hebrews 10, 24, we talk about, you know, that when we gather together, we come to stir up one another toward love and good works. And then we, he says, we don't neglect to meet together as the matter of some, but we meet all the more as we see the day approaching. So we are gonna be faithful. I would argue that we're faithful, mature Christians all prioritize being a part of regular religious services. And if we don't, well, I, don't I don't believe we can honestly say that we're a mature and growing disciple without it because it's something God commanded us to do. And we're living in disobedience by just saying, you know what, I'm, I don't need this. I got better things to do with my life. So I wanna qualify this and say, yes, it's important to be faithful to coming, you know, that unless I am sick or on vacation, I'm gonna, I want to be in God's house with God's people, engaging in God's work. It's what my heart longs to do. But we don't, want to, we don't want to get to a place where we believe that simply our attendance is what God was looking for. Attendance to services is not impressive to God back then or to us. So I guess the question remains, well, how often do I have to attend in a week, in a month, in a year to be faithful to God? I think we're asking the wrong question. We're looking at sort of a Pharisaic standard. It's not about any certain number of services or even throughout a week. You know, do I need to be a Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night person to be faithful to God? You know, we look at what they did back in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Uh, we see that they met every week on the first day of the week. We see that they also met in homes. Acts 20, 20, Paul says, I taught you publicly. We had a public service. We also taught you from house to house. We also see that they engaged in discipleship relationships. Paul mentored Timothy. Paul mentored Titus. And so there was a Titus 2 mentorship that was encouraged in those pastoral epistles that we should be teaching and mentoring people in these small relationships. I would argue that's what we do as a church as well. We have our service. We have our, uh, we have our small group meetings and we have our discipleship. Uh, what about all these other services that we do? Do we need to have Good Friday service? We don't have to, but you can. Do you need to have Sunday night service? You don't have to, but you can. Just understand that it isn't something that's prescripted in the Bible. It's not like everybody had morning and evening services all throughout the Bible. You didn't go to church, go home, and then come back. Where did that start then? Uh, if you ever read, uh, there's an old-time Southern Baptist pastor named Herschel Hobbs. He revealed the origin of the Sunday evening service. I don't know if you know this or not. It started out as a secondary AM service for people who couldn't make it in the morning because they were hungover. And they wanted to reach a different crowd, so they repeated their service on a Sunday evening. Well, why do we have Sunday evening the way it is right now? Tradition, you know. But I think we always need to understand, why do we do what we do? Is it really the multitude of services that I attend that makes me better with God? Or is it what is happening in my heart when I attend the services that God wants me to be faithful to? It's what's happening in our heart. God wants to make disciples out of us, not simply rote mechanical beings that attend and do religious things. Number four, a symptom of uh, mechanical worship is that the, we have spiritual disciplines, but it doesn't lead to personal holiness. In other words, we do certain spiritual things. We pray, we read our Bible, I open up my daily bread, I shut it, I move on. I do these spiritual disciplines, but I, I still just have sin continually as a part of my life. And that's where Israel was, or Judah was, in verse 15, he says, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil deeds from before my eyes and cease to do evil. He talks about Judah. He says that they would spread their hands, which was a common posture of, of, of worship, especially public worship. Uh, often they would stand. They didn't always close their eyes and stuff, but they would stand, they would raise their hands to heaven and they would spread out their hands like a child, you know, reaching out to God, to their father. And they would pray and there's nothing wrong with that. But pretty soon, it just became, that's what you do. 
When you pray, we come together, we come to church, you stand at the right time, you reach your hands to heaven, you open your hands wide, you repeat the same threadbare, tired prayers that you've been offering since you were a little kid, you know, and we just are just praying, just mechanically going through it. Well, it's time to pray, need to do it. And God says, when you spread your hands like this, he says, I don't see it. In other words, I'm, I'm hiding my eyes from your prayers. I'm not gonna respond to a rote mechanical prayer. Your heart's not engaged, but you're offering the right words. It's not the words of your prayer that matter. In fact, when God says, when you pray mechanically like that, and you're just uttering words, you know, right before, I mean, how many of us have been there before a meal? Lord, thank you for this food. Thank you for this day. Bless the hands that have prepared it. Amen. Pass the mashed potatoes, would you? Because I really wasn't about the prayer. <laughs> I was about getting to the mashed potatoes. And we can get that way where our prayers, even for meals, are rote and mechanical. We're not thinking about what we're saying. We can come to church and we can just, just read through prayers. We can just not think about prayers. And we just, we just say the same words because they're the right words. And God is saying, I don't see and I don't hear those kind of prayers. Because what I want to know is that in your heart, are you contemplating me? In your heart, are you engaging with me? In your heart, do you long for me? And is that prayer a response to your longing of me? Well, it's okay to do certain things in life mechanically. Uh, worship isn't one of those. If you are working on an assembly line and you're building an Oldsmobile, they still have those? I think they went out. Uh, you're building a Ford, you're building something. You're building cars. It's okay just to stamp out cars, move on. And you're just going through the motions. You're just pushing a button, stamping out cars. It's okay to be mechanical there. Um, I read an article this week about there's some hospitals that are looking to kind of automate some things. You know, they're using AI and robots to replace some nursing activities, which I guess is okay if you're just delivering a bedpan uh, or medication or something. That's okay. Uh, but when you're tired and you're hurting and you're lonely and you're sick and you're scared before a, a something, you want to hold a nurse's hand, do you want to hold the hand of R2-D2? You don't want to be there. In fact, you don't want a nurse who's attending to you who's just doing it for the money either. What kind of nurse do you want? You want some sweet grandma nurse who's going to come and she's going to love you and she cares about you and she calls you sweetie and honey and, and she, she smiles at you and she holds your hand for surgery and she's kind to you. That's, that's the kind of nurse you want. Not somebody who's just phoning it in, who's just there for the money. You want someone who this is their calling. They are, there's, you can deliver medication to a room because it's your job and you can deliver medication to a room because you care about the person. And unfortunately, where Judah was, they were phoning it in. It wasn't because they really longed for God. They were just showing up at church because it's the right thing to do. Here, God, here's the prayer that you asked for. Here, God, here's the sacrifice you asked for. And they go home, but their heart doesn't long for the Lord. That's not where God wanted them. It didn't lead to personal holiness. God says, I'll hide my eyes from you. In fact, Jesus warned us about this kind of prayer in Matthew 6, didn't he? Matthew 6 and verse 7, Jesus says, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. Gentiles were lost people. Okay? And they would just chant through mantras. I've heard Buddhists doing this, and they have like what appears to be a rosary and these little beads, and they're just clicking through the beads. Click, 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 just going through prayers. And they're just going through it. And you could tell, they're just looking around, their heart isn't in it whatsoever. And we can get that places, to that place as well, where just our prayers and our spiritual disciplines are just that. It's just what we do. But God doesn't hear us for our many words, he says. Just uttering a whole bunch of prayers 
Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, on earth is in heaven. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, blessed art thou, most woman, blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Hail Mary, full of grace. And we just kind of go through rote mechanical prayers, thinking that the abundance of the words is what God is looking for. Jesus says, don't think you're going to be heard because of your many words. It's not the words of your prayers, but your heart reaching out to and trying to connect with who God is. It is spiritual worship. It is arising from within the heart, arising from an affection for God and a longing for him. So we see here that false worship, it still prays, but when it does, it does these religious disciplines. When it does, they're still full of blood. When they do pray like this, they're still full of, they've got religious traditions, they've got all these other things, but they're, they're, the Bible says that they're still full of evil deeds that they need to put off. And so they are mechanically religious, but they're spiritually dead. They're, if you will, Christians on life support. Now, on life support, life support has its purpose and its function, doesn't it? On life support, is the body maintaining itself? It's not. It's dependent upon something external, outside of it. And so something is breathing for you. You know, you have these vasopressors or whatever that are keeping the blood pressure up. You're not even maintaining your own blood pressure. Uh, you've got, you're being fed through IV tubes, Often you're hooked up to dialysis machines that cleanse the blood for you because your body isn't doing it. You are mechanically kept alive. And so you have the appearance of life, but truly you're a dead man walking because the only reason you have this appearance of life is because you're plugged in. What happens when you unplug that life support machine? You die. That your life is dependent upon something external and mechanical to keep you alive. Do we have Christians like that? Go ahead and point to somebody if you know a mechanical Christian here today. Don't do that. We got some like that, don't we? You just show up at church and the only reason you look alive is because of this life support system here called the church. And we show up here and we're dressed right and we sing the right songs, we go to the right classes and we go home. But as soon as we leave the church doors, we've unplugged the life support machine and we look just like the rest of the world. Our mouth is just like the rest of the world. Our thoughts are like the rest of the world. Our spending habits, just like the rest of the world. We're cruel to people, just like the rest of the world. And then we show up to church, and once again, we're hooked back up to life support, and our body fills, our lungs fill with air, and we start looking and acting like a Christian again. We can't be Christians on life support. But that's where Judah was at this time. And God commands them, don't, don't be just doing spiritual disciplines and offering prayers. He says, wash yourselves. Cease from doing evil. Repent from those sins and let your life change as a result of your worship. Number five, we see a, lack, a symptom of mechanical worship is a lack of concern for other people. He says in verse 17, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. Why does God give these commands to Judah right now? You give him these commands because they're not doing them. It's like your child. You don't give them commands of lists of things to do that they already do regularly and faithfully. You don't tell your child, hey, by the way, when you're done with your work, make sure you go home and play video games. You're not doing, at least I don't do that with my kids. Uh, there's things that they do naturally. The things that you're telling them they need to do, remember your, your track shoes when you go to, go to school today. Remember your math book. Don't forget your assignment. These are things that you think they might forget. Don't forget to wash behind the ears. They're things that they're not doing. And so God is letting them know all of these things that we do for other people, do good, seek justice, correct oppression, justice for the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. You're not doing any of this. Your religion has not changed you to the point where you actually care about other people. 
It's just religion. It's mechanical. James 2, 14 to 17 actually says that this is one of the signs that you are truly alive in Christ is that you care about others. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? I mean, you say you follow God, but there's nothing that demonstrates that you love God. And then here, look at the example of this. Can that faith save him is the question. And then look at his example. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. And so when James wanted to give you an example of what dead, mechanical, life support Christianity looks like, he says, look at how you treat other people here. Do you care what happens to them? Do you see them suffering? Do you see them in a difficult spot? Do you care about the people that are around you? Mechanical worship doesn't care about others. Mechanical worship cares about me, number one. It's, it's, it's about myself. He says, if that says he has faith, he says, uh, but if your brother needs food and clothes, we say be warmed and filled. In other words, we speak the right words, right? We, we, we wish for the right things, but in our hearts, we don't, we're, we're not willing to commit ourselves to helping them. The great commandment in the Bible, we know the two great commandments of the Bible. It's to love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But what's the second? He says, it is like it. It is to love your neighbor as yourself. I would argue that God is saying, you don't truly love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength unless you are also loving your neighbor as yourself. Now, I don't say that simply based upon my own authority here, but 1 John 4 verse 20 says, if anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, we know this verse, Anyone says he loves God but hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has seen. Now that, that'll preach to us, won't it? That for some of us, if we are living in habitual anger and bitterness and resentment and we will not resolve those relationships to our brothers and sisters in Christ, we will not seek reconciliation that we are actually actively preaching against our own conversion. How can you love God if you don't love the people that God loves, is the question. False worship instead is intrinsically selfish. I go to church for what I get from it. I come here because everything is the way that pleases me. The temperature is the right way, the seats, I need pews, not chairs. Uh, I wanna have a certain thing here, I wanna see certain songs, I wanna have certain food, I wanna have people notice me, and it just becomes intrinsically about me. When in fact, when we come to present ourselves before God, we talked about last week, true worship is actually what we give. We are a living sacrifice, and we come to church not now, not critiquing everybody. Did you notice me? Did you love me? Did you pay attention to me? Did you do things the way I want? Did you vote the way I wanted in the business meeting? Was the sermon under 30 minutes? Yeah, that's a no. <laughs> is everything the way I want it to be? If that is what we do and we come to church and we hold everyone else to a religious checklist, did you do everything I wanted to? Friends, I would argue you've not come to worship. You've come to be pleased. You're worshiping yourself. I should be pleased. True worship is concerned that I'm here to please God. If God is happy, I'm happy. That means if God is happy and my, chew is my pew is uncomfortable, that's okay. If God is happy but it's too cold or too hot, that's okay. If God is pleased but the worship songs, I didn't know them, that's okay. If God is pleased and somebody didn't notice that it was my dog's birthday, it's okay because I didn't come here for me. 
I come here to worship God. Judah wasn't there, sadly. But the idea here is that true worship is sacrificial. True worship cares about what happens to others. That's why Paul said in Philippians 2, verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Nothing we do in a church should ever be, or in life, should be motivated just selfishly. What do I get? He says, but rather in humility, humility means I understand who I am before God. It was an attitude that was in Christ, even. That in humility, I don't think higher of myself than I should. Therefore, I count others as more significance than myself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but the interests of other people. That's when you know you've worshiped God, is now I don't care so much about me. I care about God first. I care about loving my neighbor. And I just trust that God will take care of me. That's when you're worshiping. Your worship should lead to a a changed and converted life. And part of that conversion is you care about other people. This is the time of the year when you watch a Christmas carol like 14 times, and then you go watch your kid do the Christmas carol at some school play, you know, and you try to enjoy it because like you've never seen this before. But uh, in a Christmas carol, you got this wicked man, Scrooge, who is just self-centered. He only cares about him. You know, let them die in the poor houses was kind of his mantra. Now, Scrooge, he goes through this whole series of scary ghost experiences and encounters. Uh, And then at the end of the show or the end of the book or whatever you're reading or watching, how do you know when Scrooge is truly converted? He wakes up from the dream, from the ghost of Christmas future? Past? Future? All right. It's been a while since I've seen it. We've got to watch it now. Okay, he wakes up from that last dream with the encounter with the ghost. How do you know he's converted? What's the first thing he does? Throws open the shutters, looks out in the street, sees a little boy. And what's his first thought? I've got to take care of this family that I've been mistreating their whole life. I've got to get Cratchit, a big old goose or turkey or whatever it was. And, you know, have you seen that big bird hanging up in the window? Not big bird, kids, but a large bird. <laughs> Context matters. You, you, know, you see that, that goose or whatever it is, you need to go and deliver that. But then not only is he concerned for the Cratchits, what, who else is he concerned for? He's concerned about the boy. Here, I'm going to give you a tip, right? And then as soon as he sends this boy on this little errand, he says, well, why, it's impossible to carry that to Camden Town, said Scrooge. You must have a cab. And so he's concerned about the comfort and well-being of this child. And then, the, then Dickens writes, the chuckle with which he said this and the chuckle with which he paid for the turkey and the chuckle with which he paid for the cab and the chuckle with which he re- recompensed the boy were only to be exceeded by the chuckle with which he sat down breathless in his chair again and chuckled until he cried. You see, when, when Scrooge finally changed and converted and became a truly different person, it resulted in a desire to be compassionate toward other people and not out of an obligatory kind of way. What was he doing this whole time while he's giving out to other people? He's chuckling. It means that this change in my life is arising from within the heart of old Ebenezer. And now, not only is he not you know, miserly and keeping all of his money for himself. He's giving it out. He's thinking about the welfare of other people. And when he does so, he is chuckling to himself. It brings him great joy and it's arising from within his heart. And that's where God wants us to be. Finally, number six here, a symptom of mechanical worship is a lack of response to God. Talking to this hardened nation, God has pled his case, his opening arguments. He has warned these people of this judgment that is to come, and now he's directly going to point out the ways that they've, that, or they've broken, pointed the ways where they've broken God's laws. But, but I want you to see here in verse 18, 
After all this that God has said, you've blown it, you've ruined it, you've not followed your side of the covenant, uh, there's bad things that'll happen, okay? Verse 18, look at the, just the kindness of God here. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. You got blood stains on your white shirt, friends. God has the power to get it out. You have blood stained your life through sin and making bad decisions and rebellious decisions against family and God and society, and you've broken the laws. God is offering us blanket forgiveness here. He says, they shall be white as snow, though they are red like crimson, you shall become like wool. And if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. What a good God. However, if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. In other words, enemy nations will destroy you. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. In other words, I'm not like you guys when you threaten and repeat with your kids. Johnny, quit making all that noise. Johnny, quit making that noise. Do you want me to get up? Johnny, don't do this. God is saying, no, I'm not like that. When I say something's gonna happen, it's gonna happen. Judah, if you continue and persist in rebellion, you will be eaten by the sword. I will, let some, I will lead a nation in here. In fact, his name is gonna be Nebuchadnezzar, and I'm gonna call him my servant. And he's gonna come and do my bidding of wiping you out and bringing you out of the land. Now, he says, if you're willing and obedient, you shall eat of the good of the land. Did Judah eat of the good of the land? They did not. We're going to read uh, later on, we're going to read books like Jeremiah, who is called the weeping prophet. You're going to read books like Lamentations, where he is weeping openly as he watches Jerusalem burn. So no, they didn't eat of the good of the land. That means they didn't listen to God. In other words, they hear this whole impassioned plea of the entirety of the book of Isaiah, a very large book, mind you. They hear the entirety of his prophecy and they will hear this stirred, impassioned plea. You're sinning, but there's hope. You're sinning, but there's forgiveness. You're sinning and if you don't change, God's gonna wipe you out and destroy you with the sword. Change. And you know what? Judah is going to be entirely emotionally unmoved by that. You're gonna be a lot like, um, you ever seen Star Trek? James T. Kirk, you know, he had this guy on his ship, the Enterprise. He was emotionally unmoved by things. His name was Spock. Fast forward a few years, you get Star Trek, the next generation, which is now old. Uh, and then they had a guy, they upped the ante. Now they not only do they have a guy who's guided entirely by reason, he's not even human anymore. He is a robot, Lieutenant Commander Data, okay? Am I speaking to any nerds in here? Okay, all right, there we go, got a few of us. Okay, this guy's a robot and he's this machine and he looks like he wears the uniform of, of Starfleet and he acts like us and he does a lot of the things that we do, but he would constantly remind people that he is emotionally unmoved by anything that happens. Anything that data does is driven by robotic programming. He is mechanically human but he doesn't feel what we feel. He is unmoved by these things outside of his programming. He simulated life. Can Christians ever get there? Where we simulate life, but when we come to church, we can hear an impassioned preaching of the word of God. We can hear a message, we can hear a sermon, but it just bounces off our heart like a pebble on the pavement. Boing, and you're like, did it, does, it, does the word of God still affect your heart? By the way, if the word of God, which is called the seed, Jesus used it in his parable as the sower, uh, the word of God is a seed. If the word of God, when it is preached, bounces off of your heart, what can we rightly say about one's heart? It is hard. 
It is hard. The word of God in good soil hits the ground and it implants itself and it grows and it produces fruit. If when we hear the word of God preached and our heart is unmoved and it bounces off our heart, we hear an impassioned sermon, I'm just like, yeah, you're almost out of time. Let's get out of here and y'all are jingling the keys on me. You know, let's go. When the word of God fails to affect our hearts, friends, we've got to be careful that maybe we don't have a hard heart. Now, does that mean that uh, every time we preach a sermon, you've got to walk an aisle here to respond to God? Out of the word of God? I would argue that you don't, okay? I'm not so much concerned that you change your geographical position from there to here. In fact, just, just really briefly, where, you know where the invitation came from? Invitationalism, this idea that you have to walk an aisle to make a decision for God, wasn't, is a fairly recent theological movement. It started back in the 1800s, uh, back with the camp meetings, uh, was very popularized by a fellow who I believe was unconverted, a guy named Charles Grandison Finney. I don't believe Charles Finney himself was actually a converted individual, and I have several reasons for that. Charles Finney believed that, you, that salvation is not a gift of God as much as it was a proclamation of your own voice and your will. You are saved because of you, and you spoke it into existence. It was a very man-centered uh, type of belief. He denied the sinful nature of man. He denied the true atonement of Christ. He believed that Christ died for a purpose, but not for people. He, he taught that salvation was not a gift of God, but, a, but an act of man's will. He called Christ's imputed righteousness a false and nonsensical assumption. These are not the things that converted people say about the atonement of Christ. And so this man was very man-centered, man-focused. Man is the reason, man is lost, but man is the, basically the, the savior of his own soul. This guy in these camp meetings would impassioned, beg, plead, guilt, shame, and drag it out to try to get people to make a physical response from there to here. The problem is, if that's what we do in our invitations, friends, there's a very solid chance you might be making a response to a preacher and not to God. That you allowed yourself to be emotionally coerced to move geographically from the pew here, but in your heart, that change hasn't been there. Now, can you come forward and make a decision for Christ that's real? Of course. But we've got to be careful. That's why at the end of services, friends, I don't sit here and beg you down the aisle. I don't sit here and coerce you. It's why Theron, I don't have him play 27 verses of just as I am. I don't play games with you and say, God told me there's still two people out here that need to make a decision. We're not gonna play those games. I'm not, I don't want to try to coerce you. The truth is, if the Holy Spirit is working in your heart, you will make a decision. You will. I don't have to be the one to coerce you into that. If your heart is worshiping God, you know who God is, you're aware of what God has done, and the Holy Spirit has taken the word of God and implanted it in your heart to the place where he wants to make you bring a change out in your life, you will change. And me coercing you isn't going to make it any more genuine. It's just going to be another example of rote mechanical religion where I can't get you to change in your heart, but I can at least make it look like you changed. I can get you to geographically change where you are. Okay, so that's why we don't put lots of pressure. You wanna respond by walking an aisle and talking to someone? That's why we have counselors here, feel free. But my main concern is that your, that your response to the word of God is a life change, is a heart change. Not simply, I walked an aisle and now I feel good about myself, I did what God asked me to do. I mechanically responded to the gospel, but in my heart, I'm still unconverted. Okay, and that's where we find that uh, Judah was here. They are mechanically Christian mechanically worshiping God. Uh, in the same book, Isaiah, when he responded to the worship of who God is in Isaiah chapter six, could I show you what a real great response to God looks like? 
He says in verse five, when he sees, remember this is that passage where he's like, the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, right? High and lifted up. So he sees who God is. He is worshiping God and look what he says. Verse five, his response to seeing God led to these words, woe is me. Woe is a proclamation of divine judgment. Woe unto, you know, this nation. Woe unto them. Woe unto Sodom, okay? Woe is a proclamation of divine judgment. He says, woe is me. He recognizes God should judge me for what I've done and how I'm living. He says, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. Mind you, this is the prophet speaking. He says, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for, or the reason I feel this way is for my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts, that when we come and have an encounter with God and with his word, and it changes us in our hearts, we will know because it's going to produce some kind of repentant response in us. Why? Because none of you and I are perfect. There's not a day we don't show up to church that there isn't something God wants to do in our heart. And I think we need to have the humility to acknowledge that no matter how old you are, no matter how discipled you are, no matter how many college degrees you have, that each one of us, we still have this flesh and this propensity to sin and we've got to repent of these things. I would argue further in, in chapter six and verse eight, when he saw God and this, had this worship experience, it led to this. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. That a natural response to worshiping God is going to desire to serve God. That's another type of spiritual decision. One is repentance. The other is God wants me to start doing something I'm not doing. But the neat thing is, friends, is when you truly encounter God and you worship God from the heart, it's real and it's not mechanical to you. It's genuine. It's going to lead to a life change. It may be a repentance of sin or it may be volunteering yourself to start doing something maybe you've never done before. God, I feel convicted that I need to start reading my Bible regular. I feel convicted I need to pray and from the heart. I feel convicted, God, that maybe I've been living in sin. I'm watching things I shouldn't. I'm saying things I shouldn't. I'm hanging with people I shouldn't. I'm, I'm, I'm... berating people, I'm gossiping, I'm, I'm living in greed, I'm, or it may be something about God, I, in response to the word of God, I'm going to, I want to serve, I want to give, I want to be more faithful. There's some kind of response to the word of God when it's genuine, when it's real, when you've truly worshiped God, when your eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. I don't believe that we can walk away unchanged. And so I just want to say with just all the humility and compassion I have in my hearts here today, brothers and sisters in Christ, when is the last time you made a spiritual decision? I would argue that's probably the last time you worshiped God. The last time you made a decision for Christ, and I don't mean, Lord, save me from my sins purely, simply, but Lord, help me to repent of this sin that's here. Help me to be faithful in an area that I'm not. God, help me to understand this. Help me to make this right with this brother or sister. Help me to whatever. I believe that every single time we worship God and we are encounter him and in his word, it's going to produce some, even if only small, it's going to produce some kind of a decision for life change. It's what we see here in Isaiah's true worship in contrast to the false worship that Judah was experiencing. So if at the end of a service we are not deeply moved in prayer, if our hearts are not stirred and begging for God, change something in me. Can we say that we have seen him? Can we say that we have worshiped him? Our response should be an expectant heart. Every time we come to the Lord's house, every time we meet with him, every time we worship God, every time we're made aware of what God has done, our response should be very similar to Isaiah's. 
I'm a man of unclean lips. Show me where I'm wrong. Lord, here am I, send me. I will present my bodies as a living sacrifice. Friends, that is true worship. I pray that Unity Baptist Church will be a church full of true, authentic, genuine worshipers. Not just people who are mechanically Christian, who show up at the right times, but that you want to be here. And not because you like me, not because you like our church, not because you like this pretty building, but because you're here to meet with God. Father, we just pray today that you are pleased with our response to your words. Father, there's no words here today that come from my own wisdom. Father, every last bit of this is just from Isaiah. And Lord, I myself find myself a worshiper at your feet this morning. Even as I am preaching this message myself, my heart is smitten in the areas where I have wronged you and sinned against you, where I have sinned against other brothers and sisters in Christ, where I have sinned in my lethargy, or that I have done things mechanically and wrote without even thinking about why I'm doing what I'm doing. Lord, I pray for this Christmas season for my own heart only. God, I just pray that my, my worship of you, my life of a living sacrifice might be pleasing to you, that when I attend services, you are pleased because I want to be here. That when I do spiritual activities, you're pleased because I do them for you and not for me. That when I pray, God, that it would be genuine and from the heart. That your eyes would not uh, be closed to my prayers, that your ears would not be stopped to my prayers. Lord, I pray for just a true movement of your Holy Spirit within us today. God, help us to respond God, not to a message, but to the words that we have read here in Isaiah 1. Help us to respond to the movement of your spirit within our bodies and our lives. God, may we worship you from the inside out. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, or if you'd like to share a response, visit us at www.unitybaptistashland.com. We would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. You can also connect with us on Facebook at UBC Ashland. If you like what we're doing, don't forget to like and subscribe and share our podcast. Until next time, may we do as Psalm 119.10 says, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments.